Well, good morning. morning. Had to get situated. I'm just telling you now, it is a blessing to hear the saints of God sing worship to his name. And I know I say it every week or I say it often, but while I'm worshiping, just hearing your voices cry out to God about his goodness and his glory, it just, it's good for my heart. (laughs) Um, I just want to remind you, y'all have been doing a great job, um, that we have a lot of guests coming. If you're a guest for the first time this morning, we're so happy to have you, and you'll look around and you'll, you'll notice that we're, we're, we're filling up, but we, have, we still have plenty of seats. So I just want to remind uh, those of you who, who are members that if we could start filling up towards the front so our guests and our friends, when they come in, they, they have an easy opportunity to find a seat. And me and Brandon will add some seats this week to the sanctuary. We'll, we'll rearrange it a little bit. But there's still, there's still plenty of room, right? So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. God, you are glorious. Lord, we praise you for the ministry of your spirit to us while we worshiped in song. As we worship through the opening of the word, Lord, I pray that you would illuminate our eyes to your truth, that you would speak to our hearts, and we would not leave the same as we came. We would leave change, we would be transformed, and we would walk out in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you will, go ahead and open in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to finish the the section. um, We'll be in verses 15 through 21. And we're continuing our series, Captivated, because we are captivated by Christ. The tension in the book is some are captivated by the law and works, while Paul is challenging the, the church there that they would be captivated by Christ alone. So... This, where we're starting this morning, it's the climax of Paul's argument. Um, It's that we're justified not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. In verses 15 through 17, we're going to take it in two chunks. The first chunk is going to be verse 15 through 17, and Paul's going to show us the contrast in trusting in works versus uh, the works of the law versus the work of Christ. And then in verses 19 through 21, Paul's going to show us that the law brings death, but the work of Christ brings life. And we get to live in that resurrected power of Christ. So here's the main point for the day. If you're a note taker, here you go. It's, it's on the screen. That Christ was crucified so that we can live justified. That, that's that's, what, that's, that's the, the summation of everything we're talking about today. So let's, let's read our text. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in, order, but if in our endeavors to be, to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live in the flesh. By f- or in the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. So our first point this morning is that we are justified by faith. That's going to be verse 15 through verses 15 through 17. So verse 15 is a bit confusing if you walk up to it and you forget all the conversation that Paul's had before this. It, so let, let's, let's take a second and remember what's, what's been taking place. Paul just finished telling this story of the cl- conflict that he had with Peter, you'll remember. Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles who were believers, eating with them, being their friend. Then these, this, this false group of teachers, they had a false gospel. They're called the Judaizers or the circumcision party in this, in this book. They show up and... Peter felt a little peer pressure and he started treating the the Gentiles like they were sub-Christian, that they needed to conform to their traditions and the practices of of the Jews to be, and let's use our air quotes, real Christians. That that that's kind of that that's what was taking place. And they were treating them like they were less than. And we've called this all the way through the book, and we're going to continue as a Jesus plus message. It's a Jesus plus gospel. Jesus plus works of the law and tradition to be saved. For them specifically, they're talking about Jesus plus tradition and circumcision. And we know that any Jesus plus gospel is a false gospel. How Jesus plus theology manifests often in our modern context, it looks like Jesus plus participating in a religious symbol such as maybe Jesus plus being baptized or Jesus plus the Lord's Supper or Jesus plus being a good person. That's how you're really saved. Again, any Jesus plus gospel, what kind of gospel is that? Come on. We're getting it, amen? But So it's a false gospel. Verse 21 says that this message nullifies the grace of God, making the death of Christ for no purpose. That's why we've been quoting that as we've been going through the book so far. So what Paul's doing in verse 15 is he's beginning to transition from his personal story to his main argument that salvation is apart from the law and in Jesus Christ alone, even though he's, he's made that, that point a couple of times. But if you read real fast, you miss it. Paul is snarky. Like some of you got like snarky senses of humor. Paul, when he's rebuking people, he's being snarky, quippy, and sarcastic. And verse 15, that's what he's doing here. And I'll show you another place that he does later because I like stuff like that. But he's doing it to show how how ridiculous they're being. So let's look at verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. 
The Greek word for birth here is, is, is nature. So we are, we are Jews by nature. Um, we're naturally better than the Gentiles, aren't we? The Jews believe that to be true. And let's be honest, most of us here are Gentiles. Um, there's a bit of truth to that, that the Jews by nature were better. They were the only group of people as a whole that worshiped Yahweh. Now, they weren't worshiping him properly, but they were the only group doing it. Um, God showed up and specifically designated the Jews as his special people. Next week, we're going to get into the Abraham argument where Paul's talking about that. And they, they had this sense of national pride that God had, had came to them and sent prophets after prophet, and God had showed up and gave them the Ten Commandments and the law. And Paul here, he's, he's playing to their, their sense of national pride and heritage. And you got to remember, all these letters are read out loud. Like, reading internally wasn't a thing. I know that's weird for us because that's how they teach us to read in school. That wasn't a thing. So they've got this letter Oh, look, Paul wrote us a letter, and they're all gathering around, and then Paul's been shellacking them for two chapters. And hear the guy in the back, like, when, when Paul says, we're, we're better than those Gentiles, you can hear him go, now that's something I can say amen to, right? He, he's playing to the crowd, almost like when a politician at a, at, at a political rally stands up and says, America is the greatest nation in the world. Every red-blooded American in, American in the room is going to stand up, clap, and cheer, right? But then the politician's going to tell us what we're not doing right, how we're not operating properly, how this other group of Americans, particularly their, uh, their opposition, is wrong, and that's, that's what they're doing. And that's what Paul's doing. He's kind of playing to him for a second. Um, so some of the Jewish Christians in the room, they were wrong. And they saw their sin and need for salvation as different than the Gentiles. And what, what the Jews are, are putting their pride in is the covenants and in, in circumcision and the law. And in their heart, they might be like, yeah, we are better than those Gentiles. The Gentiles, by the way, they were sinners. The Gentiles didn't have the law. God did not show up to the Gentiles' fathers through the prophets and do miracles among them. And Paul's like, yeah, that's my point. We are worse than those sinners. We knew the law and we still broke the law. What the Jews have done is worse than what the Gentiles have done. The Gentiles, they send out of ignorance, ignoring general revelation. That's, that's the law that Romans 1 tells us that God put on our heart. And, and by looking at creation, we know that there's a creator. The Gentiles ignored that. The Jews, they ignored divine revelation. God wrote them a book and he sent people to tell them about it over and over and over. And they rejected that. So look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Who's the we he's talking to? Is it the Jew and Gentile? 
Conversation tells us it's the Jew, right? So the we he's talking to is the Jewish Christian. We know, we know we need Jesus because we know what is really waiting for those who live under the law. We lived it. And our, our passage this morning is telling us that the law, the law brings death. You got to understand that. Galatians pictures the, the law like it's a mirror. And when you come up and you look into it, all you see are your flaws. You see yourself condemned by the law. You see yourself as a law breaker. And you should look at the law and know one thing, that you are hopeless. That's what the law brings. As a matter of fact, almost every, especially in the, the Ten Commandments, almost every breaking of one of the laws in the Old Testament comes with the punishment is physical death. We don't get it because we don't understand the law. But, but the law has been given to us to show us our flaws. Last week, we, we, we read Peter's speech in Acts 15, and he describes the law as a crushing yoke. And the, the emotional and spiritual exhaustion that he and all the other Jews felt by trying to live under the law that they couldn't keep. That's what the law does. It just shows us that we're in desperate need for another. We're in desperate need for Jesus. Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by the law. The law is the standard. And as soon as you fail, so if this is the standard, as soon as you fail, and by the way, you're born in sin, so you already start here, and then you just continually sin and sin and sin. And the law has no ability for you to get back to the standard. All the law does is it shows you your flaw, and you're like, well, what about the sacrificial system? All right, you're here, the standard's here, the sacrificial system just covers the flaw. It does not do away, it does not make you right. The sacrificial system just covered the sin. And the Bible tells us if we, are in, 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 if we fail in just one aspect of the law, that we've broken the entirety of it. So, okay, the standard's here. You failed here. Well, you're here. <laughs> like, we, we, the law just shows us that we are in deep need for another. And in the mind of the Jew, the object of the law was to justify yourself to God so that you could be accepted by him. And you're just constantly striving and trying to get right with God. That's exhausting. And by the way, I've been to enough churches. That's the Jesus plus they're peddling. If you believe that we're constantly just trying to make ourselves right, you're missing it, guys. So why do we need to be justified by God? That's the question. And I feel like by this point, it's been thoroughly answered, but it's sin. We're lawbreakers because we've rebelled against the reigning king of the universe. We've watched enough movies and guys like the gory, like medieval movies. When, you, when, you, when, when a group of people rebelled against the king, how did that normally go for them? Not good. Like, 
not advocating Braveheart, but we've all watched it, right? Like, that did not go good for William Wallace there at the end. So, somebody, somebody was thinking about it. <laughs> but the earthly king, if you rebel, death is going to come. We are rebelling, and understand your sin as nothing less as rebellion from the king of the universe. And his punishment is the second death in an eternal hell. That's why we need to be justified before God. Paul's using this word justified to paint the picture of you in a courtroom and God's the judge. You, you need to be justified. God, he's looking at all the evidence and I feel like I've laid the evidence out there for you pretty good, but when God's looking at this evidence, how does he see us, as innocent or guilty? Come on, we, we all know the answer. Guilty. We're guilty. And we need an advocate to speak on our behalf. That's Jesus. Jesus is just. Jesus is right with God. Jesus is perfect. Jesus kept the law. Jesus is the standard of perfection to get into heaven, and Jesus has a relationship with God. And if Jesus is the standard, we're all hosed, right? But Jesus makes us just, just as Jesus is just. It's not like we're less than. No, Jesus gives us his righteousness. Jesus declares us justified and we really are as he is in the eyes of the Father. So we did not keep the law, Jesus did. Jesus gives us his righteousness and therefore we are justified by Christ. When you think about the word justified, I think I've used it here before, think about just as if I'd never sinned. So when, when we're talking about you being justified, justification, think just as if I have never sinned and Jesus has made it before the eyes of God, just as if you've never sinned. We're told that he throws our sin into his sea of forgetfulness. In our case, when we, when we stand before God, God does not see us in our sins, but he sees us in Christ. He sees us just as if we had never sinned. He sees us perfect. And what we've done here is we, we see two major theologies at play. And I'm going to talk to them about them real quick. One is called imputed righteousness. And I think most of y'all have heard that one before. This might be a new one for you. But forensic justification. These are the two ideas at play here in our text. So imputed righteousness is that we receive by faith the righteousness of Jesus. He, Jesus has, like, imagine it being a, a jersey like, he's, he, he's put a jersey on me. I'm on the team. I, I, I am one with Christ. So the, the Greek word for justification that's used over and over in our passage, it's one, though, that has legal implications and, and where a person needs to be declared righteous. So forensic justification is God pronouncing innocence on on you because of the substitution of Jesus' life for you. Forensic justification means that there's no hint. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. There's no hint or stain of sin or original sin before God any longer on your behalf. So when God's looking at us who are in Christ, there's no hint. There, there's, it, there's nothing left. 
Remember those uh, forensic investigation shows when they were big? They may still be big, but I don't watch them anymore. But I remember in high school, CSI, they were killing it. Matter of fact, they had like a CSI Miami, a CSI New York, a CSI Hawaii. Like they're, they're probably still spinning off CSIs. But the one I liked was uh, CSI Miami. Now, y'all don't get it because back in the day, we didn't have Netflix and whatever came on is what you watched. <laughs> so of the things available, that was the best thing available at seven o'clock on a Thursday night. So, but I remember gathering around with my whole family watching these CSI shows and every, every show they would catch a killer and they would find them in 30 minutes or less. Really impressive. But what they would do is it'd be just the smallest strand of evidence or like a, a partial piece of a thumbprint or something like that. And, and that's, that's how they would do it. Normally, the, the killer, he would wipe down the room, and it would be some kind of crazy, like he'd bleach it and wipe it down. And then Horatio Cain, do y'all remember him? The, he had the red hair. And at, at the, the beginning of every scene, he would drop his glasses, equipped with a one-liner. And um, him and his team, they would, go, they would go search out and find that, that small strand, that, just, that little hint, just enough that whenever they, they present this very circumstantial piece of information to the, the one that they're saying did it, it's just so compelling that they, that they admit to the crime right there on the spot. Y'all remember this. We lived it every week, right? Well, they, that, that's, a, that's that forensic search. And if there was just a thread of sin left in us that was unaccounted for, by the work and the blood of Jesus Christ, we would be convicted. It doesn't matter how much we've changed. It doesn't matter how much we've been transformed. It doesn't matter how much we've cleaned up our lives. If there was just one hint left, we would be convicted. But we've been justified by Christ. There is nothing left. There's nothing to be found because we have bathed in the blood of Jesus. Before the eyes of God, there's nothing. Imagine in school, some of you don't have to imagine too hard, but you took a test and you answered every question and you got a zero. That's hard to do, but imagine you did that. And I made a 10, that was my lowest. I don't know that I ever made like a legit zero, but I was down in the, in the single digits. Um, but so you made a zero. As a matter of fact, everybody in the class made a zero. Except for one kid. One kid made 140. He even got the extra credit points. He, he, he killed it. And the teacher says, look, I know y'all did poorly. I know y'all failed. Tell you what, if you would just come to the front of the class and say, I want this grade, I'll give everyone the 140. So the whole class, they get up and they, 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 come, they come down front and they get the grade justification is a gift. It's, it's that grade. You didn't earn it. Jesus did, but God's willing to give it to you if you accept it. Trusting in works would be like that one kid in the back of the class. You know, every kid walks through. He's just sitting in his chair. And the teacher's like, hey, do you want the grade? No, I'm good. 
Um, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Hey, I'm just going to be real honest with you. The whole reason I gave everyone the grade was because I looked at your record and you're going to fail for the year and I was trying to, to make give you a chance to pass. This, this is your only chance to pass for the year. No, I think I got it. God has came to us. Trusting in your works or trusting in Jesus plus your works is looking at God going, I think I got it. Whenever he's pleading to you that you don't. And he sent one on your behalf that did. And all you have to do is put your faith in him alone for justification. And the Bible tells us you will be saved. Let's, let's keep looking at our text. It's going to come up on the screen. It says, We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Not, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul, he's messing with them a bit here. Like, um, the point is made through the translation, but they... they I think the Holman is, or the, the Christian Standard Bible is the only one I saw that, that had it in there. It's, it's, they, what they do is they say, um, the, the Greek here is, is, is different. It says no one by works of the law will be justified, but in Greek it, it says by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He's, he's playing on this, this, the, the idea of flesh all the way through the book. Paul's using the word flesh to, to kind of, poke the Judaizers in the eye because they're talking about you're really, you finish God's work by doing good works and the, the cutting of flesh, circumcision. That, that's what in their mind really seals the deal for God to, that you're one of his. And, and Paul's just kind of messing with them here. He, 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 he's making fun of them a bit, reminding them once again that the stuff that they're peddling is a false gospel and there's no salvation to be found in it. Paul says clearly that trusting in anything apart from Jesus alone is a false gospel that leads to hell. And this is where we must search our hearts, right? Because it's like, all right, we get this. Who did Paul write this to? A group of unbelievers or to a church? He wrote this to a church, so we as a church, we need to do the work and internally look at ourselves and say, where am I believing in a Jesus plus gospel? Where am I believing like, okay, I'm saved by faith alone, but for someone to really be saved, they need to look like me. Maybe, maybe it's uh, Jesus plus being a good person like I am. Maybe it's, Jesus plus the, the specific tradition that I grew up in. Maybe, maybe some of you are trusting that you're going to heaven because you're in the same type of church that your mom went to. And I know she went to heaven, so I better go to that church so I can go to heaven too. Any, any Jesus plus attendance, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus tithe, those are different gospels. And it's just the, it's the tail wagging the dog. Like those are... Those are outward expressions of what God has done internally in you. We give because we're changed. 
We get baptized because we've been transformed. We take the Lord's Supper because we're covenanting in the new covenant of his blood. Those are all things that we do to express what's been done in us. Trust in Christ alone for salvation. Justification is all about grace. Works can't purchase grace, but works are a product of grace. Amen? So let's read our second part of the part of our, our passage. And if you're, if you're a note taker, this is going to be verses 18 through 21, and it's living by faith. So verse 17. But if in order in, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live in the flesh. I, I, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. When we look at verses 16 and 17, Paul, what he's doing is he's, he's answering a question preemptively that he's already answered in Romans 6. This is... So why would somebody want to add to the law? Because what about those people that are going to make the grace of God cheap? That they're just going to keep on sinning? Well, that's, 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 what, that's what he's responding to. Some were worried that his salvation was all about grace. That would cheapen grace. And, you know, we've all met this person. They're, they're the one that says, you know... Um, I believe in Jesus, but their life doesn't look like it. And they, they say, I, I believe in Jesus so I can do whatever I want. And they just go on their merry way sinning. Or uh, we've all interacted with the person who's living in their sin and they're conducting their lives in a way that clearly doesn't follow Jesus. And when you go to share the gospel with them, they're like, well, I walked down the aisle. Well, I said a prayer. I raised my hand. And this is what Bonhoeffer, we'll, we'll read a quote from him in a minute. That's what he calls cheap grace. And when, when you come to Christ, one of the evidences that you are in Christ is not perfection, but obedience. Let me say that again. One of the evidences that you're in Christ, read John 1. That's the point of the book. One of the evidences that you're in Christ is not perfection, but obedience. So verse 17, this is what he says. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. The idea that one can be saved and continue to live in sin as he did before is repulsive to Paul. It's repulsive. Paul's angry and he, like the, the, the Greek gives you the exclamation mark. He's telling you no. He's yelling at the, the, the church in Galatia. No. Romans 6.1, he's, he's answering the same question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
By no means, certainly not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The purpose is not that we would continue in sin, even though grace pays for that sin, but we would walk in the newness of life. We get resurrection power because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus incarnates our life. He comes and lives in us. We have God, if you're a believer, God dwells within you. The freedom that comes through Christ is not a license to sin, but a strength to live in righteousness. Bonhoeffer says this about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Forgiveness without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate in you. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. Grace costs something. One who accepts true grace, it's evidenced because they're, they're living as if they've been crucified with Jesus to that old way of life. They're walking in the new way of life. They're walking in this newness of life that can only be accomplished by God. We talk about Jesus coming in, in, like in his incarnation during Christmas, that he came and, and he was both man and God that God, God came and lived in human bones, we are incarnated by God once we believe. We'll talk about that in a minute. Paul then directs his attention away from the one who's willfully living in sin to those who are trying to add to, the law, uh, add to, to grace but with the law that want to complete the work of Jesus. Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. So what was torn down by Paul? The hope that keeping the law would justify him. If Paul started hoping in the law after coming to Christ alone by faith, then is he trusting in Christ alone? No, he's trusting in the law. Then he's in that same place where he started, a sinner in need of grace. Through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God because I've been crucified with Jesus. That's what he says. Through the law, I died to the law. When Paul was finally able to see the law illuminated by the Holy Spirit, he discovered his inability to keep the law. And he saw that the law did not have the ability to make him righteous. 
That's, the law can't do those things. The law shows you you're condemned and it cannot make you righteous. And again, I'm going to say we don't really understand the gravity of what we've been liberated from because we don't understand the law like Paul and these Jews who lived under it for a lifetime. They understand the emotional exhaustion. And maybe, maybe you do. Maybe you've lived under the law of like the Christian Bible Belt, of Christian moralism, and you just feel beat up. You felt beat up for a lifetime. You felt beat up as a kid growing up through church. And you felt beat up by your parents uh, because nothing you do is right to them. And you feel like this church thing's just a yoke that's exhausting to you. But that's not what this is. Because of freedom, Christ has set us free. It's not required. Apart from coming to him by faith, there's nothing required of you. There's nothing you have to do to finish what has been done. And he will empower you to walk in this newness of life. So why would anyone want to rebuild the law? Why would anyone want to leverage church or the law to oppress someone else? The answer is easy. Ego. What I can manipulate the law, ignore my failure, and use it to stand above you and cast judgment down on you. I can leverage the law to make you look bad and me look good. Paul and Jesus, they're over here passing out the term hypocrite like it's tickets to a fair, right? Every time they see a Pharisee, you know why? The Pharisees should have understood. The Jews should have understood that the law is condemning. And they're walking around like peacocks, like they're righteous, in their long tassels, in their long robes, because they're manipulating the law to oppress other people. And maybe that's what you feel like coming into church. From, from something you experienced as a child. Just because someone manipulated the law, because someone manipulated the Bible, because someone manipulated the church to make you feel small, you need to understand that means they're small and they missed the point. God is big. And God has love for you. That's why he did this whole thing. The law works. They, it doesn't bring righteousness. That's why we've quoted verse 21 for the last few weeks. Because adding to the gospel nullifies the promises. Because it's no longer about him and what he accomplished. Rather, who's it about? It's about me and what I can accomplish. And if you're using good works to leverage your own morality against someone else, that's an indicator that you're believing in a Jesus plus. You need to think and pray about it. What, what, 
What are some things that are so deeply embedded in your actions that if someone else didn't do it, not, not you're putting it on them, but if someone else didn't do it, that you would think less, of, then less about them. I can't believe they don't. I can't believe they don't teach Sunday school. I, I can't believe they, um, they, they, they don't put money in the offering plate when it comes by. I can't believe they would put their kids in uh, public school. I can't believe they wouldn't put their kids in public school. I can't believe they, they don't do this like I do. I can't believe they do do this like I do. I can't believe they don't vote this way. I can't believe they do vote. I can't believe, and we add and we add and we add and we add. That's leveraging yourself over other people. And maybe that's something we need to repent of. Because you know what? When, when, when we live that way and we start saying, because they don't do like I do, what it does is it causes division in church and makes deep-seated bitterness, doesn't it? Paul says that he died to the law so that he could live for God. We cannot live for God without God living in us. And the more you mature in your Christianity, the more and more you're going to find out how utterly dependent on God you are. Verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. There at the end, you see that substitution preached again and again. Paul can live for God because he's been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer he that lives, but Christ that lives in him. We cannot live for God without God living in us. When we, when we come to Christ, we receive the Bible, and it, 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 the, the, the Bible, it tells us we receive this new heart, that we go from from being spiritually dead to alive. That, that's what the theologians call the work of regeneration. That we're, when you come to Christ, you are dead spiritually. Like we're born dead in, our, dead in our sin and our trespasses, right? Ephesians 2. We are dead spiritually. Until we put our faith in Jesus and he gives us this new heart. The a picture of it's given to us in Ezekiel 36, 26. And you'll see it on the screen. I pray you would write this down and go look at it later. And he says, this is God. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is the promise of this, this, this new covenant. I will put this new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So you're dead spiritually. That, that heart's not beating. And I will put my spirit within you. Whose spirit is coming to live in us? God, the Holy Spirit. We are to be, the, the new covenant promise isn't just that God's gonna incarnate himself and come to earth, but that God is going to come live in us. It's been promised since the Old Testament. It says, and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Why does God put his spirit in us and change our hearts? It's so that we can live for him and walk in obedience and in his statutes. 
But notice, the statutes and obedience are not what bring us to God, and it's not what keeps us in God. It's that new heart. And if God wasn't clear enough about it, he, verse 37, chapter 37 in Ezekiel is really cool. It's called the Valley of Dry Bones. So he takes Ezekiel to, to paint this picture to this valley and bones scattered all the way across. There was a war fought there, a bunch of dead folks. Dead, dead army just laying out there. The, the flesh had been picked off their bones by the birds. Like it's, it's, it's a thing. And he says, can these bones live? And Isaiah prophes- or Ezekiel prophesies, and the, the bones, flesh, and muscle come upon them. And he prophesied that God would put his spirit in them. And that's, that's the picture of what's happening in Ezekiel uh, 20, or 36, 26. And if we didn't get it, God sums up the, the, the section just to let us know. Look at Ezekiel 37, 13 on the screen. He's saying, this is the point of my illustration. He raised an entire army to make a point, (laughs) by the way. That's pretty cool. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves. He's not talking about the, the resurrection, by the way. He's talking about the resurrection to new life. And I will raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Next week in chapter three, we're gonna see this new life in the spirit and the power of the spirit in us. But you need to understand we cannot walk in obedience until the spirit is in us. And that comes when we believe. But this whole idea that I'm gonna do works to complete what Jesus has done, that's a lie, that's a false gospel. The true gospel says, I'm able to walk in obedience and live according to the call because I have the Holy Spirit living and breathing in me, enabling me to walk as Christ walked. Just a reminder, we are in a series called Captivated. And I want to challenge you every week as we talk about it. We can choose to be captivated by the law and works, and that's a life of condemnation and oppression. Or we can choose freedom and be captivated by the love and the work of Jesus. If you will, let's stand to our feet. The, the band's going to come forward. And as you stand up, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to look within. Just bow your heads. And maybe the Holy Spirit is challenging you right now about maybe how you've weaponized your faith in the past. We're not here to beat you up over it. Repent and move on. Maybe there is a deep seed of bitterness that has come from somebody doing that to you. Bitterness is like drinking poison, wishing somebody else would die. Give it up. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I don't know Christ, I don't know this freedom, and I really want to. I'm going to be right here in the front. I would love to pray with you and talk to you about this new relationship that you can have with Jesus. If you will, pray with me.